I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. We actually have looked at this passage once before, but in keeping with the theme of how did the saints of old, the people of Israel, how did they see Jesus? What did they perceive of him? What were they taught of him? It seemed almost necessary that we look at Exodus 12 because, you see, the Jews had three annual feasts. And none of them pointed so clearly, well, I shouldn't say that, they all pointed to Christ. But one of the ones that pointed so clearly to Christ in his suffering on our behalf that we might live was the Passover feast, the Passover celebration, and the feast of unleavened bread that began on the day of Passover. And so we look at Exodus 12 that we might see the introduction of that feast, which explains so beautifully the history behind it and what it was intended to convey. So we're going to look at the first 20 verses of Exodus chapter 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night. Roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats unleavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. But that which every one must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on the same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. 
In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in all your houses. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Amen. <coughs> Beloved family of God in Christ, imagine a holiday that combines some of the best parts of all the holidays into one. The joy of Christmas, the living hope of Easter, the feasting of Thanksgiving. Well, that's what God's people were given in the celebration of Passover. And this passage teaches us how and why God launched that celebration for them. But we need to be clear, Passover Passover was meant in all respects to be a day that focused entirely on God. Unlike our modern Christmas celebrations, there was no gift exchange. Unlike our Fourth of July holiday, it was not to be a, a nationalistic day. Family tradition was not to be a factor. Every family was to do the same thing. No, Passover was to be about God. Because it was about the deliverance and the freedom that God provided. It was to be about gratitude. Because they were to be grateful for what God had accomplished for them. Because ultimately, Passover Passover was a dual-minded celebration that looked back at how God had blessed His people so richly in bringing them out of Egypt while looking forward to the deliverance that was infinitely greater that was soon to come. Passover was about Jesus Christ. And that's why God was so passionate about His people celebrating this sacrament. Join me then in considering how God plans a feast To reveal his divine deliverance. That's our theme. God plans a feast to reveal his divine deliverance. Now we're going to see that this feast had two parts. First of all, consuming the lamb that that really embodies or ensures deliverance. And And then casting out the leaven that embodies enslavement. So there's a a taking in and a casting out. So we look first at the taking in. How they were to consume the lamb that ensures deliverance. But first notice how our text begins. It points out the context. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. That's a a mouthful right there because it tells us exactly where and when this all happened. You'll recall That God's people had been in Egypt for 430 years as slaves. Well, not all of it as slaves, but certainly for the past couple centuries. And God had called Moses, who was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. God had called Moses to come and be the deliverer for his people. He had been in Egypt for 40 years. Then he had been out in the wilderness of Sinai for 40 years as a shepherd. Now God had called him back. Moses didn't feel he was prepared for that, but God gave his brother Aaron to be his mouthpiece for him. And they had come and they had confronted Pharaoh and demanded that he let the people go, and Pharaoh said no. So God had executed 
Nine plagues against the people of Egypt. Nine plagues by which they were brought low, by which their gods were humbled, by which a separation was demonstrated between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel among them. The last time that Moses appeared before Pharaoh after the ninth plague, Pharaoh cast him out from his presence, angered at God's wrath, promised Moses that the next time he saw Moses, Moses would die, and Moses acknowledged that. But then before leaving, he assured Pharaoh that one more plague was coming, and it would be a deadly plague, the likes of which would ensure that afterward, all of Egypt would send Israel forth with great eagerness. And that time was now nearly at hand. And therefore God says in preparation, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. That's not an insignificant detail. God's preparing Moses and Aaron and all the people of Israel for what he's about to do. Because what he's about to do is give them a new start. Beginning this month, they would be free. Their slavery would be over. It would be relegated to history. They would be able finally to serve God freely, unhindered by their enemies. This was an immense promise for old Israel. Again, 430 years as slaves, forced to live where others placed them, forced to work in the work that others commanded of them, prohibited from worshiping God in the way that they desired. But now, very soon, they would be departing Egypt, heading for a promised land of Canaan, where they could worship however God commanded, obey God in whatever He desired of them. For the first time, they would be free from their slavery. Folks, that's what God has promised to us as well. We too once were slaves, not to Satan's servants in Egypt, but to Satan's power over our souls by the sinful nature and the the desires of the flesh, we were from the start enslaved to sin. And although our bondage was not physical, it was nonetheless real. In our natural condition, we were not free to serve God the way He commanded. We were not free to worship God. In all of life, we were enslaved to the powers that hate God. But just as He promised Israel of old, so God has promised to us, you will be free to reject Satan and to follow God. You will be free to serve God in all of life, just as He calls you with all the gifts He's given you. Just as for old Israel, so for us. God has promised freedom. And for Israel, that freedom was sealed with a feast, a very special feast. The biggest part of preparing for that feast was the selection of a lamb. On the 10th of the month, the head of each household was to go and find a lamb that was big enough to feed his household. Now, understand that wasn't mom and dad and 2.3 kids. That would have been mom and dad and their kids and maybe grandma and grandpa and uncle and aunt here and there. Perhaps a married child's spouse and a couple other children. This could be a large family. Not every home was that large, but many of them were fairly large extended families. So they were to find a, a, a lamb. The, the word there, by the way, indicates either a sheep or a goat, a lamb or a kid. But they were to find one that was large enough for their 
household. And if their household wasn't big enough for one, they were to find a nearby neighbor who, combining the two homes, they would have enough people for one lamb. And God was very specific about what that lamb, what should qualify that lamb. It must be a male. It must be a year old, which is to say, in its prime, not really quite ready for slaughter yet, normally, but tender and young and playful. And it was to be unblemished. And there's much emphasis placed on that unblemished ideal. God wants this lamb to look perfect. Now that's symbolically important because really the meat from an animal that is injured or lame is no less good than that of an animal that appears perfect outwardly. But God wanted them to see in that lamb, the true lamb of God, the one who would deliver them from a far greater slavery to their sin, the one who would stand in their place one day to redeem them. And that one, if he was truly to please God, he must be in all ways perfect. Not just in the body, but more so in the soul. Because that's what God requires of us, of all men. He requires perfection according to his holy judgment. So they must find a lamb or a kid that looked to be perfect. And then they would bring it home on the tenth day. Keep it for four more days. To ensure that at the last minute no one was scrambling looking for a lamb that would suffice. That nobody was at the last minute compromising, taking one that was lame or one that was, had a belly rupture of some sort. Ensuring that they were well prepared to celebrate this feast. But also getting to know that lamb. This lamb would have lived in the house with them. They would learn its quirks. They would get a glimpse of its personality. A one-year-old lamb is sort of a playful critter. They would get to know it a bit. But then on that 14th day, on the fourth day of having the lamb in their home, in the evening, he says, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. The process was really pretty straightforward. You Kill the lamb quickly, humanely. You collect the blood. He says, take the blood and use it as paint on your doorposts and on the lintel. And then roast the lamb over a fire. Don't boil it. Don't cut it into pieces and roast it on a skewer. Don't eat it raw. Cook it over a fire, on a spit, in its entirety. Now stop there a minute. Consider the effect of all this. They would have had this animal living with them for four days. They would have grown, especially the children, a bit attached to the animal. Surely, given the playful nature of a lamb of that age, they would have at least been amused by it. That's hard. But it was meant to be hard. It was an image of the greater lamb to come. They would see his affection for the people he came to serve in the affection of that little creature. They would see how unblemished, how perfect he was in the perfection of that lamb. They would see his trusting nature in the trusting nature of that lamb. And then they would see painfully how he would freely give his life for us. Dying for the sake of those who didn't deserve it. 
His lifeblood shed to save his people. His flesh destroyed that they might be nourished unto life. This was an image for Israel of Christ, the Lamb whom God would send. He is the Lamb before whom the inhabitants of heaven now bow in humble worship and whose unblemished worthiness all the saints in heaven confess. His blood is what removes from us the judgment of God. And His intercession is what secures our life and well-being. In the death of these little lambs, Israel caught a glimpse on that first Passover, but also every year after that when they celebrated the Passover, which they didn't do faithfully, but they should have, Israel was to catch an annual glimpse of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God dying for the sake of His people. And having seen, having beheld that image, they were then to consume that lamb. He was the main portion of their meal. And along with the lamb, they would eat unleavened bread, which could be made quickly and would fill one's body, and bitter herbs, to recall the bitterness of the sacrifice God's people require. All of it they must eat that night, no leftovers. Whatever was left over was to be burned. Now, folks, listen, practically speaking, this was to be nourishment for the journey they were about to take. God was going to lead them out of Egypt. He was going to lead them out into the wilderness. It would be a while before they would have a good hot meal again. This was to prepare them for that physically. But spiritually, spiritually, this was to teach them that if they were to truly live, if they were to be reconciled to God, if they were to be at peace with Him, someone must die on their behalf. If they were to have nourishment unto eternal life, the unblemished one must die. This meal, this feast was to show them Christ. And they were to eat this meal dressed and ready for the journey. Did you notice that detail, kids? Verse 11. This is not how you would normally eat a meal, especially a big feast. Normally, think of Thanksgiving. You sit down for Thanksgiving, you look at that great big spread of food, you look at that juicy turkey, and maybe you loosen your belt a notch. Make a little room. But they were to put their belt on. Understand they wore robes. Men and women both wore robes in that culture. The common thing to do when sitting down for the big meal was to take your belt off so you could be comfortable to take your sandals off so that you could relax. You would leave your staff in the corner. There's no need for a staff when you're in the house. You use that for walking and for guiding your sheep. But they were to do the exact opposite. Put your belt on, lace up your sandals, take your staff in your hand so that at a moment's notice, you can go out that door to wherever God sends you. Again, practically speaking, this was to make them ready for when God would call, but this was more of a spiritual lesson. This was a demonstration of their faith. God promised on this very night, you're leaving Egypt. As soon as you finish eating, the call will come, the trumpet will sound, and you will go forth. Now, will you eat this meal in demonstration of your faith, in confidence that God is, in fact, about to get your sandals dusty? And so God tells them what he's about to do. Verse 12 and 13. He says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. Not someone else, not servant. God himself will pass through Egypt 
And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. This is what Moses was told to warn Pharaoh was coming. From the least to the greatest, man and beast alike, the first offspring would die. Folks, understand, that sounds horrific, but it's merely a down payment on the judgment that all of mankind deserves. Ultimately, on the day of judgment, God will strike down with eternal death. All who stand against him without fail. And he says he will wage judgment. He will strike down all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. In striking the people of Egypt, God was revealing the emptiness of their gods. Because while Israel serves a God who never slumbers nor sleeps, who protects them from the sun by day and the moon by night, they believed that their chief God was nearly powerless at night. And so God would strike them at their moment of weakness and he would judge their gods. What a tremendous and terrifying night this would be for the people of Egypt. But not so for Israel. They would be safe in his fatherly hand every moment because they would be protected, how? By the blood. God says he would see the blood on their doorposts. And knowing that house was inhabited by his people, he would pass over them. So you see, this, the, the blood was a twofold sign. It was a reminder to God, these are my people. These are those who are protected by the blood. Not just the blood of a lamb, but the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. And for them, it would be a sign of assurance. The blood is on our door. The blood marks us. We, therefore, are safe from the judgment. Someone else has died in our place. Folks, this is Christ. All of what we see here showed Israel Christ Jesus. The blood of the Lamb by which they were marked to preserve them from the judgment of God, to free them from their slavery, the, the judgment that God brings against all of those who would Enslave his people. This is Christ. The nourishment that would sustain them on their journey in the wilderness. The guidance that would lead them forth from this land of pain and suffering. That was Christ. And therefore God's people were called to celebrate this feast regularly, annually. So that their hearts would look back at what God had done and how he had delivered them. And as they saw how faithfully he fulfilled his word, how perfectly he kept his promise to deliver them from that land of slavery, they would also simultaneously look forward and see how perfectly he would deliver them from the greater slavery of their sin. How, how even as by the blood of that lamb of old they were protected on that night, so too by the blood of the greater lamb, Jesus Christ, by the, the lamb who was the Messiah, they would be preserved from all judgment in time to come. Brothers and sisters, we must do the same. Particularly as we look to the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate next week. As we see the bread broken and the wine poured forth, we must see that Lamb of God whose life was taken from Him. No, who gave His life freely that we might live, that we might have true life. Who was bound and tied that we might be loosed from our sin. 
and given freedom to love and to serve God with all our heart and soul, mind and strength, who allowed himself to be captured and destroyed by the world that we might be freed from the world and all of its influences. Brothers and sisters, do you not see that that's what that sacrament shows? That's the new Passover, the Passover that looks not forward but backward at what has already been accomplished. And we are called to celebrate it regularly just as they celebrated the Passover. That we might remember and believe that what he promised Israel of old, he has accomplished for us, his people. But listen, this is not a one-time deliverance that then leaves us unchanged. God was delivering Israel of old, and it was a one-time deliverance. It was a, a one-night-and-done kind of thing, but it would, it would change everything about him. God was bringing them out of Egypt, and in doing so, he was changing their very identity. No longer would they be known as the slaves of Egypt, but now as the servants of God. No more would they be a people broken and weak and pitied, but now a people strong and renewed and feared. God was changing everything for, for Israel. And that transformation was to be seen in the call to cast out the leaven that embodies enslavement. That's our second point. Beginning in verse 15, God sets out a new element for Israel's feast. In the coming years, this wasn't something they would do the first time you understand, but in the coming years, they would celebrate the Passover, and, and that Passover would mark the beginning of a longer feast. It would begin with the Feast of Passover, but then it would continue for the entire week. And by that ongoing feast, they would learn that having been delivered in a moment by the suffering and death of the Lamb, now they must begin, now we must begin, a life that is marked by something new. God sets forth the details twice, both in verses 15 and 16, and then again in verses 18 through 20. What it tells us is that on the 14th day of that first month, the day of Passover, all the leaven was to be removed from their houses. Kids, we've talked about leaven before, right? Leaven is that stuff that makes your bread light and fluffy. It's actually an organism that grows. You can get it today in little packets that you sprinkle in the, the water that's going into the bread dough. But back then, they normally saved some of the old dough. And they would put that into the new bread, the new dough. And they would mix it in, and it would grow, and then they would save a piece of that dough for next time. That leaven was an organism that would grow, and as the yeast sat there, it would get bigger and bigger and bigger, because the yeast was spreading throughout the dough and forming gas bubbles, which is what would make it nice and light and fluffy later. But on the day of Passover, their houses must be cleansed of all leaven. It must be removed from their midst. And for seven days thereafter, there must be no leaven in their homes and certainly not in their mouths. And meanwhile, worship must be held on the first day of the feast and on the seventh, the 14th day of the month and the 21st. And God shows that he's very serious about this instruction. Verse 15, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Verse 19, for seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a stranger or a native of the land. 
Now, what that meant practically is hard to say. It might have meant that God wanted them to be excommunicated, to literally be cast out of Israel. But at the very least, it meant that God would remember on the day of judgment that, he, that they had neglected his command. They had rejected his intention. God was serious about his people celebrating this feast. Now, why is he that serious about it? What's so important about this feast of unleavened bread? Folks, by this feast, God's people were to remember that God had rescued them completely. He called them out of the land of slavery to which they would never again return. He called them to a new life, a new hope, an entirely new identity. And they must remember now, this is who we are. We are not the slaves of Egypt. We are the servants of God. They must remember, and they would do so by casting out that old organism that had silently been growing in their midst. They would remember by that act who they were and whose. And so must we. Our catechism in Lord's Day 13 asks, why do you call Jesus our Lord? And the answer we give is, because not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, he has set us free from sin and from the tyranny of the devil, and has bought us, body and soul, to be his very own. We have become servants owned by Jesus Christ who saved us. That's who we are. That's of the essence of our identity. And we must never, ever forget that. Because we belong to Jesus... Everything about us is transformed. We can't keep holding on to the things of this world because our citizenship is in heaven. We can't identify ourselves by the, the sins and the desires of the flesh because we are identified by Christ, our Savior, who freed us. We can't live for, we can't pour ourselves out to the passions and the pursuits of this life because we recognize that this life is just preparation for a far greater life that we are to live throughout eternity as Jesus' servants. And so we must cast off the old leaven of our worldliness, of our sin, of our rebellion. The Apostle Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 showed that the church in Corinth had a real problem. They had a member who was living in a dreadful sin. Now, it wasn't such a big deal that there was sin in the church. There's going to be sin in the church until Jesus comes back and perfects us all, right? The problem was that this guy was okay with the sin. He identified himself by the sin. He embraced it wholeheartedly and proudly. And the church... They were so proud of their tolerance in allowing this guy to live in his sin in the church. And Paul says, your glorying, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Folks, that's imagery from Exodus 12. And understanding that imagery is central to our calling as Christians. 
Paul says, you truly are unleavened. Leaven is a substance that's introduced into the dough and then spreads throughout. It influences, it changes the substance into which it is introduced. That's what sin does. That's what worldliness does. It spreads throughout our lives, throughout our attitudes, throughout our hearts, throughout our minds. It influences, it pollutes everything about us. And it makes us bear the character of the sin. Did you know there are different varieties of yeasts, different strains of yeasts? They taste different. They have a different flavor. They have different characteristics. You use one kind of yeast, it it maybe tastes a little more earthy. You use a different kind, it tastes a bit fruity. Our sin flavors everything about us. The way we speak, the way we think, the way we act, the things we desire. But because we belong to Christ, because we are his servants, we're to cast out that old leaven, to no longer be identified. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin, but what it means, brothers and sisters, is that we refuse to be identified by the sin that once held us captive. Now it spreads throughout, it permeates So we have to work at digging out all of those sin spores, if I can put it that way. But we do work at it. We strive to put it off. We make it our life's work. This is what Ephesians 4 talks about. When it says, we are to put off concerning our former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That's putting off the leaven of your sin and your worldliness and your old character, your enslavement and putting on bit by bit, day by day, the character of Christ, replacing the leaven of the world, the leaven of your sin with the unleavened purity of Christ. That's the lesson the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to give to Israel of old. In the Lamb, you've been freed from your slavery, and now you are to root out the leaven of worldliness and sin and slavery from your life. And brothers and sisters, he wants us to take that same lesson on ourselves. Again, look at the Lord's Supper. You have been united to Christ. As truly as that bread, when you eat it, is united to your body, just as that wine soon immerses itself into your your body, into your digestive system, into your bloodstream, so you have been joined to Christ. You are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, and therefore now you make it your life to root out that old sin that old character, and by the power of the Holy Spirit to replace it with the unleavened purity of Christ. We know the story of Israel. They didn't do so well at first. And sometimes they did better than others and then they would fall back into it and they'd have to be restored. And so it is with us. It's a lifelong task to recognize the significance of being freed by the Lamb and to live a life that is unleavened. But it's a task we take up because we have been freed, because we have been joined to the Lamb, and because the Lord has claimed us as His own. May God 
impart to us a recognition and a joy in the divine deliverance He has worked in us in Christ. And may our lives be devoted to giving Him glory for it. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, what an amazing God You are. And what an amazing Savior is Your Son who has delivered us from that which enslaved us and has given us the new identity as the unleavened people, the people of Christ, the people of the Lamb. Lord, may you impart to us a wholehearted recognition of what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.